0: Hello. Are we live? We're going. Okay. Hello. Uh, Welcome to Objective Health. Uh, I am your host, Doug, and my co-hosts today are Erica and James. And in the background, as usual, on the ones and twos, keeping it real, is Damien. Hello. So today, we decided we would take head-on the the no-virus theory. Um, I don't know how many people are really familiar with this out there but um, particularly around the uh, coronavirus um, pandemic lockdown thing that's happening right now um, there's been a lot of kind of a resurgence almost of this kind of no virus um, idea Um, now this has been around for quite a while Um, the idea that uh, there aren't actually any viruses uh, there's different flavors of it, obviously. Some people say there's no pathogens at all. Um, some people say that, no, there's bacteria and things like that, but there's no viruses. Um, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of different players in the game, but we thought that we would just kind of like sit down and really kind of take a look at, you know, the evidence that we have for viruses. Um, also, I mean, there, I should also say that there's people out there who say that the coronavirus isn't real, even though they ne- don't necessarily subscribe to the um, the no virus theory overall like they think viruses exist but not the coronavirus so I think to kind of start things off there was an article in the conversation um, which Damien, maybe you can pull up Um, and it's basically it's written by um, a researcher named Karen Mossman who um, is a professor of pathology and molecular medicine and acting vice president of research at McMaster University Um, and she's Canadian and is basically telling the story of how Canadians managed to isolate the coronavirus Um, so I was just gonna go through Damien if you could scroll down to um, where it says ideal viral conditions the heading Um, so the first paragraph there she just says isolating a virus requires collecting specimens from patients and culturing or growing any viruses that occur in the samples these viruses are obligate intracellular parasites, which means that they can only replicate and multiply in cells. Now, that was one thing that I think we'll probably get into it more later mm-hmm. on. But a lot of the people um, who were denying the existence were saying that um, that the with the way that the virus has been isolated has not fulfilled what are called Cox postulates. Koch was a researcher. Um, it might be pronounced Coke actually. Um, around kind of the turn of the century and he came up with these postulates that were basically the way to determine whether a pathogen is actually causing the disease that it seems to be causing um, and the problem is that this was this predated the discovery of viruses by a long shot and it doesn't quite fit with um, modern medicine and our conception of disease as it is now because of this, you know, it says she's saying that, you know, these, these viruses have to survive in a cell because viruses don't have the machinery themselves to just kind of replicate and survive on their own. They need to hijack the, uh, the cell and its machinery to be able to kind of reproduce. So. I thought that that was interesting because it kind of debunked, well, it doesn't debunk, but it kind of gives, gives a reason behind why people are saying, you know, oh, Cox postulates haven't been fulfilled for the coronavirus. Well, they can't really be um, fulfilled as they were stated back in the 1800s um, because they didn't know about viruses and viruses can't be held to the same standard that bacteria are. Anyway. So to isolate a particular virus, researchers need to provide it with an opportunity to infect live mammalian cells in tiny flasks or on tissue cultures. Viruses adapt to their hosts and evolve to survive and replicate effectively within their uh, their particular environment. When a new virus such as SARS-CoV-2 emerges, it isn't obvious what particular environment that virus has adapted to, so it can be hard to grow it successfully in the lab. This is another place where you see a lot of people... Um, Thomas Cowan in particular was talking he was he brought up a study where they tried culturing these viruses in multiple different types of cells Um, you know I think there was monkey kidney cells there was um, other mammalian cells and you know the study was basically there like they you know they were trying to figure out okay how can we culture this so they're trying it in different cell types and most of them failed and, you know, Thomas Cowan was kind of like, aha, see, most of them failed. So that means that, you know, the virus isn't even real. But really, it's like this is a very simple kind of study to in order to find out how they can grow that virus. You know, it's, it's a it's a necessary thing. So to pick that, I mean, there's lots of studies out there that are trying it on all kinds of different cells. But he kind of took this one and is saying, well, there you go. The only one that actually it actually worked on were disease monkey kidney cells or whatever it was. Um, but. Really, this is just a, like a process of elimination. <clears throat> so, continuing on here, um, we use tricks to draw out the virus. Some sometimes the tricks work, and sometimes they don't. In this case, the researchers tried a method that Benarji, who was a researcher, and the team had previously used while working on the coronavirus that caused Middle Eastern respiratory syndrome. Culturing the virus in an immunodeficient cell that would allow the virus to multiply multiply unchecked, it worked. So they did find a cell that it actually worked in. They had to disable its uh, um, immune system, though, to be able to to get it to kind of uh, propagate. Um, Since specimens from the patients are also likely to contain other viruses, it is critical to determine if a virus growing in the culture is really the target coronavirus. Researchers confirmed that the source of infection uh, sorry, confirm the source of infection by extracting genetic material from the virus in culture and sequencing its genome. So this is another complaint that you hear a lot, um, that they aren't using a pure, they haven't, you know, isolated the virus to the extent that there's nothing else around it. Um, and it's it's kind of a sticky point. And, you know, it's not, I, I don't think it's an open and closed kind of thing. I was talking actually with, um, over email, um, a guy who we had on the program before, um, Professor Denis Rancourt. Um, and he, he considers this to be a sticking point actually with, uh, with the whole thing that the, uh, the virus hasn't been isolated to the extent that other viruses have been. And he thinks that it, it should be that, um, basically the, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to speak for him here necessarily. So understand that, um, this is me, you know, um, my impression of what of what his um, his objection was, um, but he's saying that you know the that the, the virus has not gone through enough um, rigorous um, isolation process um, so I just thought I would mention that there um, so then they compare the sequence to known coronavirus sequences to identify it precisely once the culture is confirmed researchers can then make copies and share it with um, with colleagues. So they basically, you know, are taking a a, a mix of different, uh, you know, a culture that has like several different things in it, or all kinds of different things in it. And what they're doing is comparing the different stuff in there to known coronaviruses. So that could be the common cold or something like that. They know that they're looking for a coronavirus. So they find the thing that's close to it. And they match it up and say, okay, aha, this is our, this is our culprit right here. Now keep in mind that this is being done all over the world by different labs who are not most of them probably aren't in, co- in communication with each other. Um, and all of them are kind of coming to more or less the same kind of conclusion. They're finding the same um, genetic code for the virus. So I thought that I would just go through that, that kind of first part there to kind of give kind of an idea of what the process has been for them to kind of identify um, this coronavirus. So what do you guys think?
1: definitely not my uh wheelhouse of expertise but it is interesting because there's so much information out there that this seems to be one of those things that people pick up on and just run away with right and instead of really looking at the um the result of of it all you know like we are living the result of yeah, of, of of a virus. And, um, so yeah, I'm fascinated by it all. As I said, uh, when we were speaking off air, I'm not really sure it's so hard to keep up. And I feel like, as you were saying, it could be one of those things that people just go, Oh my God, this guy is falling. It's not real, but here we are, uh, for a lot of us still in lockdown, uh, almost a year later. So, uh, I'm always solution oriented what's the solution so it's not a it's not a virus, so then what do we uh you know how yeah. does that move us forward in space and time yeah that's just me
2: <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of what um, one of my mentors told me once he said well, he used to say it all the time the the body doesn't call what you care what you call it, so yeah. you know at the end of the day um you know we we i think we can agree that there's some sort of illness going around. And, um, it seems like there are a few issues, you know, there, um, uh, it's, it's, it's easy to see that the, um, well, how do I put this? Um, there seem to be elements of, uh, societies, you could say government elements, corporate elements, et cetera, who are taking advantage of Mm -hmm. the situation. Um, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the virus itself doesn't exist or that the illness that the virus causes doesn't exist. Um, so, uh, yeah, I guess, uh, I guess going back to uh, what I said originally about the body doesn't care what you call it. I mean, um, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's not a virus. It just means that the, uh, the disease is, you know, the disease is what it is and there are different levels of, of reality. So, Mm -hmm. um, as far as I can tell from the reading that I've done, um, it seems that there, there is an actual virus that's been, um, isolated from samples and, you know, you can, you can argue about, um, the, the lab protocols that have been followed and whether or not the virus has been, um, Sequenced appropriately or isolated appropriately, but it, it it does seem that there's been a virus isolated and and um, it would have to be a massive conspiracy on a global level encompassing thousands of researchers uh, billions all agreeing to yeah to to <clears throat> falsify their uh, lab results and cover up the fact that there's no virus and you know, put their reputations on the line and and pretend that they're, you know, fabricate these results. Um, and there's probably some of that going on. You know, we, I think in last week's show with Dr. Merritt, we talked about um, the issue of mask wearing, and she, she said that she had dug into some of the um, papers that had been published around mask wearing, and she doubted that they were done appropriately and some of the authors maybe weren't even um, uh, scientists who were uh, trained appropriately to to write on those issues but I think when it comes to the existence or non-existence of the vaccine certainly there are plenty of qualified researchers and labs who have sequenced the virus in multiple countries Um, so yeah I don't know that's my take at this point it's a little convoluted, I'm sorry.
0: No, no. I think I, I I you know agree with you. I think um when I think that, that in a lot of the cases that um for me it seems that a lot of times these conspiracy theories I I hate to call them that because, you know, that's that's really broad strokes, but um they tend to fall apart for me when they require that there are millions of people who are in on it. You know, millions of people who you, you know, you might even know some of them or something like that. And it's like, I know that that guy is not involved in some major conspiracy. But I mean, you know, some some of what they're saying doesn't necessarily have to involve that sort of thing. You know, sometimes they, um, it, it might just be that uh, uh, a number of people are kind of ignorant or, or being uh, led in the wrong direction or something like that. But anyway, maybe right. um, sorry. Go ahead, Erica.
1: Oh, I was just going to say one thing that kind of a while back, I was reading about this and I believe it was Dr. Bush. He's a, you know, microbiome advocate, farming, whatnot. So I follow his work and he was saying several months ago that he didn't come out and say that it wasn't a virus necessarily, but that the, what people were suffering from respiratory wise could be due to pollution, which for someone like me was like, Oh, that seems very reasonable. You know, maybe this is because it started in Wuhan and then it was in Lombardy and he was talking about the, you know, Wuhan being one of the most polluted places in the world. And maybe, you know, it was something pollution oriented and we're not really looking at that. So I, I could go down that rabbit hole for sure because uh, it's kind of like the, um, the autism debate, you know, is it just vaccines? Well, it could be confounding factors. So I just wanted to put that out there that, you know, I can see, and I know that uh, no more fake news, John Rappaport was kind of on that same line of thinking, Mm -hmm. like this could just be massive environmental toxicity and people are having respiratory issues as a problem. And, and, and of course it feeds into my narrative, like, well, yeah, we're not really doing anything about the massive amount of pollution that's in the world we haven't seen anything change in the last year about red remedying you know water toxicity and things like that so i could see Mm -hmm. how this idea could really ensnare people you know what i mean and um, kind Mm -hmm. of lead you astray yeah and Mm -hmm. then and then uh, take your energy in the process and and really move you out of objective thinking to subjective thinking and yeah so I wanted to put that out there because I do think that there is something to be said about the immune system being suppressed massively because of environmental toxins and then people getting sick, right? Yeah. So.
0: I mean, sure. it goes back would, to, sorry, go ahead, James.
2: Oh, I was just going to say that would absolutely, I think make people m- potentially more susceptible to infection. Um, yeah. Whether it's a virus or a bacteria, um, if you yeah uh, exposure to environmental toxins and pollution could certainly weaken the immune system. And um, I think, you know, the way that the narrative has been driven, it's a lot of people are very afraid and that drives people to black and white thinking. So then people start thinking, well, it's either pollution or a virus, you know, it's, you know, or the virus doesn't exist. And there's a huge conspiracy um, because certain elements of society are taking advantage of the situation. So, yeah, anyway,
0: I mean, that goes back. We did a show a while back um, where we were talking about, uh, is it the germ or is it the terrain? You know, and our point on that show is that, well, it's both. You know, it's kind of Mm -hmm. like your terrain is, you know, if your terrain is damaged by these environmental kind of things um, or even emotional type things or electromagnetic type things, you know, then that is a breeding ground for the virus or bacteria or whatever it might be to be able to take hold. You know, if you are run down, your immune system is not as in good shape and therefore you're more susceptible. Um, we came to a similar conclusion when we were talking, we interviewed Scotty from Scotty's Info when the whole, um, what's it called? The, uh, um, 5G, 5G, 5G. Yes, 5G
1: caused, caused it. <laughs> right.
0: Right. And I mean, it's kind of like, well, it's not completely, um, out of the question for that very reason. I mean, we, we know that electromagnetic uh, stuff can definitely uh, hinder the immune system. So sure, it could make you more susceptible or something, but it's, it's that black and white kind of thinking that, oh, it is definitely caused by 5G. There is no virus. It's just that people are having this sickness because of 5G, but it doesn't play out. That's the problem. When you're looking at all these other kinds of things, what we're seeing is this is spreading in the way that a pandemic spreads. You know, -hmm. It's not, uh, you know, they say, oh, you know, they only look at one kind of node and say, oh, Wuhan had just introduced 5G and that's where it broke out. And it's like, well, where it broke out in South Korea didn't have 5G or where it broke out in Lombardy or whatever. They didn't have 5G. So it it just, and I mean, that's just on the simplest level, even looking at uh, kind of other levels and other things that people are, are blaming this on. You have to look at it. Um, on, a, a, like on a spectrum and saying, well, why is it spreading the way a pandemic spreads if it's not a pandemic? And if you can't answer that question, then I think you really have to kind of step back and say, okay, maybe I'm jumping to conclusions here. Agreed. Yeah. But anyway, I mean, David Ike is one of the guys who's really been um, kind of pushing the, that it's all 5G thing. Um, and he says a lot of stuff. There was one video in particular that was floating around, I think, when he was interviewed by London Real. Um, so he's been kind of a big player in in this whole thing of uh, it's actually 5G that's doing it, and it's kind of led to people burning down 5G masks and stuff like that. And we should say, you know, as we said in our show with Scotty, we're certainly not comfortable with 5G as it's being ruled out. There's a lot of questions around it. Um, so we're certainly not defending... Um, the whole 5G network, and I think that there's a lot of things that need to be um, researched and dug into more on that. But that doesn't mean that the coronavirus doesn't exist and it's actually all just 5G. But one of the other guys um, is Dr. Andrew Kaufman. He actually a psychiatrist. He's not a, he's not a virus researcher or anything like that.
1: <laughs> I thought um, you said he's not a virus.
0: <laughs> no, no, he's not a, vi- a virologist, I guess I should have said. Um, he's also not a virus, although his video apparently is a mind virus. But I'm actually surprised at the number of things that actually spread because of things that are said by these people. You know, things that I had picked up on and kind of like held in the back of my mind as maybe possibly being true. Um, There was one thing in particular that was mentioned. It was promoted by both David Icke and uh, Andrew Kaufman, that um, the PCR tests are actually one of the strings that they're picking up is actually a um, uh, genetic code that's actually found in humans. You know, so actually it's leading to all kinds of false positives across the board because... It comes from uh, it's a genetic code that you find in humans, and they had it, this. It came from like an obscure blog post where a guy had found a code, a string of code that um, was found in like uh, chromosome eight of the human genome. And the thing is, it was it was it just kind of shows like that these people don't really know what they're talking about. You know, they've got a theory and they're kind of jumping onto anything that kind of confirms that theory, because once you had some researchers kind of weighing in on that um they were like no actually that's not true um the the code that is found in the coronavirus that they're searching for is it 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 was very complicated and i i admit that i didn't totally understand it but basically what they were saying is that you uh it was the reverse basically like you know the, the the code was was essentially reversed um what you're finding in the human genome versus what you're finding in the coronavirus so um so yeah, it wasn't like he, the 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 t- p c r tests are not picking up any human genetic code, um but I had actually heard that somewhere and kind of was like put it in the back of my mind, all, oh yeah, those p c r tests are total bullshit, you know they're just finding uh human genetic code in them, but that's not true so it actually it it one thing from going into this kind of deep dive on this stuff is that it the amount of stuff that was kind of, that is has been just sort of floating around um that actually came from people who are not, I don't know what to say. They're not qualified I, I, exactly to be able to, to be um, making these kind of statements.
2: I think that's a sticky issue. I mean, um, because some people might be qualified to discuss it, even if they don't have a degree in yeah. epidemiology or virology or something like that, just because somebody doesn't have a degree or a certificate or something doesn't mean that they're not qualified necessarily. Um, But then on the other hand, you have other people who suffer from Dunning Kruger syndrome who think because they have a medical degree, then they're qualified to talk about, you know, as an expert in any domain of medicine, Mm -hmm. you know, so then you might have somebody who's a psychiatrist and they feel like, well, I'm an, I'm a doctor, I'm a psychiatrist, therefore I'm an expert in, all domains of medicine. Um, so you, you have to, yeah, I I think that you're right, Doug, you have to look at what they say and do your own digging and, um, come to your own conclusions for sure. And the PCR tests, it's really confusing. Um, it's not a simple, you know, positive or negative test because of the, um, you know, the cycles that have to be run to, uh, Amplify the the signal from the viral DNA RNA in this case. So first, they have to take the viral RNA, which has to be isolated in the first place, mm-hmm. and then it's transcribed into DNA because it's an RNA virus, and the PCR test uses DNA as a base. And then the DNA is amplified, and each cycle multiplies the amount of DNA in the sample mm-hmm. until there's enough to um, uh, give you a positive test. Mm-hmm. So obviously the fewer cycles you do, the more genetic material was present in the original sample. Yeah. Um, so there are a lot of numbers thrown out around that, like, um, you know, that if it's, it's closer to 25 samples, then it's more reliable. Other people say if it's less than 35 cycles, then it's reliable. Um, so I think that's a matter of debate. Um, it definitely
0: is. Yeah. And it is very confusing too because I know a lot of people are saying that, you know, PCR tests aren't accurate and they're they're terrible and all this kind of stuff, but you know, the more digging I've done on this, the more I realize that actually PCR tests are actually pretty incredible at what they do. The problem seems to be is what they're actually using it for. You know, they can detect if there is genetic material there and they're very accurate. Um but the problem is that just because you found genetic material doesn't mean that you're sick. You know, it might be right. a viral fragment. It might be, um, it might have some of the virus there, but uh, your immune system is doing a good job and it's almost cleaned it all up. You know, It's mm-hmm. it, it, it really isn't, um, it, it seems to me anyway, um, as a layman, that it, it, it just, it isn't that the PCR tests are bad because they've been using those since the 80s. I mean, anytime they're talking about, identifying uh, DNA somewhere at a crime scene, let's say, or doing um, some kind of uh, uh, paternity test or something like that. I mean, those are all PCR tests that they're using for that. Like, those things are generally well-respected. They're accepted in courts of law. Like, those things are accurate at what they do. The The problem is that, yeah, I mean... And the other thing is about the cycles, like you mentioned, James. I mean, I was reading one blog where there was a, a guy saying, you know, I'm. he was basically saying that he's he's, he's you know upset at the number of people who are dissing PCR tests essentially and he was talking about a study that he he pulled up that um, where they didn't find there was there was a contagious virus that wasn't detective in, in, in excuse me wasn't detected until over 35 cycles you know and it was still a contagious virus so people who are putting these limits on it saying oh yeah no it can't be over 35 or something like that it's like well it's it's really not that cut and dry um, and then there's also the issue that, you know, multiple labs, they all use the PCR test in a, a slightly different way. So it's, I think the way that the PCR tests are being used is probably irresponsible. You know, I, again, I'm a layman, so I don't know. But um, the PCR tests themselves, I think, shouldn't be we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, essentially.
2: Yeah, one of the articles that I read suggested that um, I didn't. I didn't uh, dig to um, see if I could back up the information myself. So it was secondhand information, but th- this person said that they found that uh, their sources suggested that the PCR tests were ninety uh, percent effective at detecting positives. I think so. Mm-hmm. If you get a positive result, you could be ninety percent sure that it was accurate. So there were yeah. 10% false positives. But on the other hand, they found that there were actually a lot of false negatives, right? Which is interesting, I think, because if that's the case, then we could, we, we could um, theorize that there are actually more coronavirus cases than are showing up as positive tests, right? Mm-hmm. So that would actually lower the case fatality rate even more, because there are more cases, right? Yeah. Um, But then you get into the issue of, you know, calling a positive PCR test a case, like what you were saying, just, just now. And that's, that's really a change from the way that we normally practice medicine, you know, you you don't send people for a strep throat test unless they have a sore throat.
1: Normally,
0: Exactly.
2: So no one's sending everyone to get tested for the flu unless they have symptoms. Exactly. Traditionally, you would only uh, label it a a case if the person has the symptoms of the disease and tests positive. So the lab tests were used as a, uh, to confirm what you saw um, through physical diagnosis, you know, what you were able to observe in the patient. Um, So that's and and that's that's open to abuse, I think, because then you can this whole issue over asymptomatic transmission and uh, being able to say that everyone should has a moral responsibility to social distance and wear a mask because, you know, you could be an asymptomatic carrier walking around spreading the disease. Um, And that seems certainly up to up for debate, at least as far as I can tell from the research that I've done.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well there maybe we should go into Koch's postulates or Cox postulates. Um there was let's see if I can find it here. The Sorry. Yeah, it's um, Damien. It was uh, called virology.ws, virology blog. So, Koch's postulates were—I I kind of briefly um described it at the beginning, but a lot of people um have been talking about this online, and citing it as the reason that um, or evidence for at least that the virus doesn't exist. Um, so basically, uh, as I explained before, Koch was a guy who, who essentially came up with his postulates to be able to determine that the pathogen that they had found was responsible for the specific disease that they found it in, or that they found in a, in a person. Um, and it was basically four, four postulates. It's been written in different ways, but essentially it was like, okay, so the organism must be regularly associated with the disease and its char- characteristic lesions. Fair enough. Um, the organism must be isolated from the disease host and grown in a culture. Okay. The disease must be reproduced when pure culture of the organism is introduced to a healthy, susceptible host. Like, these all make sense, you know, you kind of take it, you take it from a person who has these symptoms, um, you are able to grow it in a culture, and then when you introduce it to a new organism, they get the disease. Um, And then you have to basically do that again, so the the same organism must be re-isolated, from the experimental infected host. So again, you, you have to be able to to draw it out. But the thing about Koch's postulates is that these are kind of like, it's a good guideline. I mean, it was certainly a, a good thing for him to do at the time because he was um, essentially laying out a systematic method for determining that, okay, this bacterium that we found is responsible for this disease. Um, and he used it actually to, to identify um, tuberculosis and there was another one, too, that I am forgetting off the top of my head. But what they don't tend to point out is that they, even within his lifetime, he actually became less kind of rigid on these, because what he found was that there was such a thing as an asymptomatic infection. So it it's like, yeah. Sorry. Sorry, they're the just on this page. The other, yeah.
1: disease, the other disease they were talking about is anthrax and cattle.
0: Anthrax and yeah. cattle. Right. Yeah. So the idea that the microorganism is found in a diseased animal, but not and not found in healthy animals. Which, sorry, the the version that I read out first didn't say that. But the first the first tenet, basically, the first postulate was that micro my, the microorganism must be found in the diseased animal and not found in healthy animals. Well, he already at that time figured out that that wasn't the case because he found out about asymptomatic infection. So he knew that the putative agent in uh, cholera, for example. Um, could be isolated from both sick and healthy people. So he already got rid of that first postulate at that time. Um, So yeah, and then the second one, microorganism must be extracted and isolated from the diseased animal and subsequently grown in a culture. As I explained at the top, that can't really be done with viruses, or it can't at all be done with viruses, because viruses won't replicate outside of a cell. So you need to use some kind of host cell to be able to replicate that. And a lot of people are, are complaining that there are no pure samples out there. Um, and I think that this is the reason for it. The reason is that you need to actually have it in cells to be able to to replicate. Um, so already, that's kind of two of the postulates that are, that are not used. Now, mind you, scientists still do the same kind of equivalent of that. And they have done it with um, the with COVID, as far as I understand it, they have actually done it in uh, in monkeys and hamsters, I think, where they've actually kind of taken the, the virus, cultured it, and then reinfect and, and managed to infect um, another organism with it. So it seems to me that, that there's a lot of kind of sticking points on this stuff that people are um, maybe getting a little bit hung up on.
1: Kind of in a lighter note, I heard recently uh, COVID-19 is a virus previously known as the cold or flu. <laughs> You're right. <So.
0: laughs> yeah. I mean, it certainly does seem that way. Yeah, I guess it's, it, there is like a lot of nuance to this because it kind of seems like things have really divided into sides. And it's kind of like the people who think the, the reaction to the virus is bullshit are kind of falling in one camp. And then you've got the the mainstream guys on the other side who are falling into another camp, and a lot of the nuance seems to be lost. Um like for instance, I don't know how many people out there are like us who, who are kind of like yeah, the lockdowns and the measures are bullshit, but it, that doesn't mean that the virus doesn't exist. You know, it it seems like that there's that level of nuance. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, there are a lot of people out there who are like that, but it seems like that that that's kind of a um I don't know a smaller segment of the of the overall people who are I mean I guess it just falls in with all that kind of QAnon stuff and and things like that as well people who just kind of take the take the the take things too far in their rejecting of the the system you know the rejecting of the the scheme that we're kind of confronted with
1: I agree and again it comes back to this idea of like so how does that help everyone move forward? Really? Right? Like how does so the virus doesn't exist? And does that mean that uh, all these emergency orders that are like in the US are going to be lifted tomorrow? If there's some magic bullet proof that comes out, you know, I mean, I feel like it, it feeds into wishful thinking too. like, if we could just be right, that it's, it's not really a virus, and then, then everything will go back to normal. And I think we've really cross that threshold and we're not going back. You know, I mean, um, I don't know. That's just kind of my thought on it. Like just reading about it. It's fascinating. And again, I'm not a medical person. A lot of this stuff, you know, you find yourself falling asleep at the computer because you can't follow along the train of thought, but it does seem like a a way to co-opt people's energy into a direction that maybe isn't even that beneficial or positive, you know? Yeah.
0: Well, it certainly makes it divisive, you know? Um, I think it gives some, it gives people something to fight against, you know? That is, you know, the... I mean, it's undoubt... It, it seems there's very little doubt in my mind that, that we're all being kind of played here. But it's kind of the extent to which we're being played that that is a bit um, up in the air. And there's a lot mm. of kind of confusion about that. But yeah, I mean, I think that you're right in the sense that even if the whole thing is blown wide open and you know we know precisely what's going on, what is the way forward? Does that mean that the uh, the lockdown ends and everybody goes back to normal it's unlikely. I don't think we've ever seen in history people giving up you know you know
1: liberty for safety <laughs>
0: well, even just once once kind of Liberties have been taken away. I don't think there's ever been an instance where the powers that be have decided, well, let's give them back those. You know, we found out we were overreacting. We better, uh, we'll roll things back and, and give everybody back the, the freedom that we had. I mean, there might be some examples, but I think it's not, it's certainly not uh, the usual way things go. It's like, you know, uh, once somebody has achieved some level of power, they seem unlikely to give that up.
1: Most definitely. And it might be just another way to kind of pigeonhole people into that. uh, I like to call them conspiracy queries, (laughs) you know, like if you're interested in it and you want to research it, but, you know, um, you know, in everyday life, talking with co-workers or people that are, you know, acquaintances is, you know, if you start to question, oh, you're one of those con- uh, conspiracy theorists that uh, denies the virus exists, right? And, you know, they, it's like, it's like that, that will end the conversation yeah. instead of the conversation being more broad, like, well, you know, um, look at what it's done to our reality that we're living in whether it's, uh, you know, uh, just the cold that's been renamed, or the flu, or environmental toxins. I mean, as I said before, it's just, it's really upended the entire world. And we're all kind of falling down uh, the rabbit hole trying to reorient ourselves on, on how to make it through today, you know. Mm -hmm. And so back to my theory. So okay, well, it's, you know, if it's, man-made, if it's lab-made, I mean, you know, I mean, there's so many ways that you could really upend the conversation and get away from the true implications that every single one of us is living with every day, you know?
0: Yeah, it is, it is, it seems like a common tactic to amplify the extremists to Kind of smear the reasonable people you know all anybody who has any questions essentially is labeled as a uh, a virus denier you know and they're all lumped into the people who are burning down cell phone towers because uh oh you don't believe in the in the virus you're one of those uh you know we saw the same thing happen with the the whole anti-vaxxer thing too Anybody who has questions about vaccines is, is smeared as an anti-vaxxer, which is, you know, they, they, they amplify the signal of the craziest people out there, the people who are saying the wackiest stuff. And that ends up uh, smearing the people who, who who just have legitimate questions. You know, it seems like it's like a straw man argument, essentially. It's, it's a way to kind of uh, really polarize the debate and smear one side with kookiness, essentially.
1: I agree.
2: Just for the sake of discussion, do you guys think that there, could you imagine a a virus that, maybe a more deadly virus like a smallpox or a black death or something like that, that where it would, be justified to have the types of lockdowns and uh, restrictions of movement and thing like things like that. Um, Honestly, well, I think
1: what, what Lee Merritt said was a, actually a really good point in the interview that we did with her about smallpox because she, she painted a pretty dire picture. And after living in Hawaii, which was a state that was decimated by smallpox Turn of the century, I yes, I could see that. I could see that it, if it was as virulent and could spread through the air like that, that you know, you you wouldn't want to leave your house or you'd want to hunker down. You know, yeah, I think I, that's I could the key. I, I'm realistic in that way. You know,
0: that's the key, mm-hmm. though. I think you wouldn't want to. I think yeah. that if it was, right. if this was actually a serious pandemic, where people didn't have to get a test to know whether or not they had it. Like people were actually dropping dead in the streets. People were having very severe symptoms. You wouldn't have to be enforcing lockdowns. I wouldn't think. I mean, everybody would kind of be like, I'm not going outside. I'm not going to come into contact with this thing. Um, you know, the, the, you, you wouldn't need police state measures because I think that common sense would kind of take over at that point. I mean, maybe I give people too much credit, but honestly, I like, I think if people, if bodies bodies are piling up, I don't think anybody's going to be, you know, uh, well, I've got to go to work. Well, I got to go visit my grandma. I think, uh, I think people would, would kind of automatically, I mean, you know, there would probably be government, um, advice, but I don't know that it would necessarily need this, need the same level of enforcement. You know, I think that people would just Mm -hmm. be kind of like, Governments would be like, okay, uh, everybody should wear a mask so you don't catch it. And you would have enough incentive because of what you're seeing out there to wear that mask, to lock down in your house, to not get within two meters of somebody. So, yeah, I don't know. That's that's kind of the way I see it anyway.
2: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think um, it seems like. Uh, when the pandemic first broke about a year ago, and and most Western countries started locking down, um, because of the way that the situation was painted in Lombardy and the um, relationship of SARS-CoV two with with SARS, you know, two thousand three SARS, which had a mm-hmm. very you know a higher mortality rate, but a lower, um, it was less infectious. You know, a lot of people got really scared that we were looking at something with a 30% mortality rate, say like SARS, but, you know, very transmissible. And um, so I, it's been interesting to see that the more data that comes out, it's clear that that's not the case. Um, And that the, the uh, mortality rates actually very, very low, but because um, we, we're committed to these strict draconian measures, um, it's like we have to keep following them t- until who knows what until um, when, yeah. So, right. <laughs> because, you know, I, I wonder, they, they're already talking about uh, new variants that are like the South South African variant or the UK variant that maybe the vaccine's not effective against. So. Does that mean as those variants become more widespread that we're, everyone who's already been vaccinated is going to have to get vaccinated again? And I mean, that's, that's what I wonder about, about it. Um, but yeah.
1: Or if is it isn't some sort of priming for what may eventually be a black death type of scenario, or, you know, maybe there's something that they know that we don't, you know, but to see you know because it seems like now kind of the narrative is you know well they know that they can do this now they can lock the entire planet down people are going to comply I mean even as in the United States states start to open up and they're not requiring masks as much people are still wearing them you know what I mean so it's almost like a I do think there's a lot of psychological warfare going on. And uh, I, I do think this virus, no virus, man-made this, that, and the other thing, again, these are all just kind of ways to distract and kind mm-hmm. of convolute the, the, the discussion. And, you know, I, I, I don't have a solution on the way out of that, other than to always be a uh, very, um, critical like i did spend the what is it two hours and 30 minutes watching david icky on that video (laughs) and i will say uh you know uh, he had some very compelling information especially his information about super psychopaths which i thought was very interesting and a lot of things that he said you know um could be right on, but then, you know, there's some other stuff in there where you're like, wow, that could really just throw anyone for a a loop. If you were solely looking to him for your information. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that it really takes a critical, a critical eye, like you were saying to, to kind of sort through all this kind of stuff. I do think it's a worthwhile exercise though. I think there's a real temptation there to just kind of throw up your hands and be like, well, Whatever happens, happens. I can't sort through this mess. I do think that it's it's worthwhile to to try and stay on top of it, to try and kind of figure out what what is actually going on. If somebody makes a claim, to really let, kind of look into it and kind of see, because like I said before, you know the the, the number of things that I I found in doing this, um, the research for this, that really had no actual basis for it, but it was in my head, you know, not that I necessarily had bought it and like, you know, um, completely believed it, but it was in there as a possibility. Um, so it's been a worthwhile exercise for me anyway, to go kind of, to kind of really go through this and kind of sort things out and see where, where does everything lie? Like how much of this stuff is coming from kind of people who are, are more, you know, they have an agenda essentially. Like, you know, I think that guy, Andrew Kaufman, um, it really he he has some kind of agenda going on, and I can't really necessarily say what it is, but he he seems to be deliberately kind of misleading people um by saying that viruses don't exist and um well, I mean maybe we should even go into it a little bit. He was actually talking about it's, it's, it it's Thomas Cowan says the same thing that viruses are actually exosomes, and exosomes are essentially um uh, things that are, they're particles that are um, kind of in the cells and ejected from the cells to, they serve a number of different functions and they don't know what all of them are. You know, they've only kind of really been deeply researching these things for around the last 20 years or so, I think. And um, for one, one thing that they do is get rid of cellular debris. Another thing that they do is pass messages between other cells. And I think the confusion kind of comes in, um, or at least part of the confusion comes in, that viruses have actually been found to hijack the exosomes from cells and they can actually travel from one cell to another by getting themselves inside these exosomes and one thing that um, uh, andrew kaufman said he quoted uh, a researcher who's a virologist named uh, james hildreth and he was quoted as saying the virus is fully an exosome in every sense of the word and he you know um, Kaufman basically jumped off by saying oh you see even though this virologist agrees and he said you know he even exaggerated in saying that you know pluralizing it, saying virologists actually agree some virologists and the fact of the matter is is that was taken completely out of context um, it was taken out of a paper where um, Hildreth was talking about this process where the viruses will hijack exosome pathways in cells um, and not that viruses and exosomes are the same thing. And, you know, Kaufman will say things, you know, he he shows a picture of an exosome and a picture of a virus and says, see, it looks like the same thing. But really, like, you know, that's that's a layman looking at it. It's kind of like, no, they don't, you know, to a virologist, they can look at those two things and see that they're different. And it doesn't really matter anyway, because they're not only identifying these things visually. They can, the main biggest difference between exosomes and viruses that exosomes don't replicate on their own viruses do so if you were to take an exosome if you had made a mistake um and thought that viruses uh, that these exosomes were actually viruses and you try you put them into a culture with cells and tried to get them to replicate they wouldn't do that not in the same way that uh, viruses would The, the cells will make exosomes but they don't replicate like you know they're not um replicating in the same way that viruses are so I mean they have lots of different ways of determining that these things aren't the same things and it, it really as a layman looking in on it a lot of people can't tell that you know they hear a convincing argument from Kaufman or from um, Cowan or other people that you know it is these 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 aren't viruses viruses don't exist these are just exosomes that they're finding um, and actually Damian maybe you can pull up uh, that tweet from James uh, Hildreth. Do you see it there? Just so we can show how he actually feels about the uh, apparently some are criticizing my work. I think it was the other one actually. Okay, it has got a picture of Ike on it. This um, one. Underneath it's there. There is from James Hildreth. Uh, It says the virus is real, the pandemic is real, and is caused by the virus, period. So he was basically alerted to the fact that people are out there are are quoting him um, as evidence for um, the idea that viruses don't exist. And he's an actual virologist, so he's kind of like, no, that's not the case, that's not what I'm saying, I don't agree with you people, and was kind of putting an end to it there. So, Um, you know... Kaufman made a few other, um, what can only be deliberate blunders as well, um, in his video. I mean, I, I don't think I'll go into it too much, but, but um, yeah, he he, I I think he is deliberately misleading people. Um, I don't know exactly what his agenda is, but um, maybe just to be a superstar.
2: Yeah, it could be. I mean, one of the, one of the things we read for the show, they were talking about, um, basically the semantics involved, you know? So if you define an exosome as a packet of genetic material, that's, uh, expelled from a cell wrapped in a protein, you know, then viruses are exosomes because they're genetic material and they're ejected from the cell. Mm -hmm. Um, but not all exosomes are viruses. You know, you could say that there are endogenous exosomes that are produced by the cells for their own purposes. And then the viruses are like a parasitic, um, organism that by definition is an exosome. Um, if you define exosomes that way. Right. So it's like, you know, all, all, uh, squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares. Right. Um, so if you have an agenda and you take, take somebody's quotes out of context, then of course you can make it fit your agenda and um, they might be doing it on purpose or maybe not. I mean, there's a little bit of that um, selection and substitution mm-hmm. of data and,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know, trying to make the facts fit the narrative. Uh, so if you're looking for evidence that um, it's all about the terrain and it's, you know, there's no, no physical material pathogens, you know, bacteria and viruses are um, not causative. They're uh, present. They're just part of the disease process, but they're not causing the disease. Um, Then you're going to look for data to support that and, you know, take things out of context and things like that. So.
0: Yeah. 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 And I mean, essentially that is, that is what they're saying that the, the, uh, COVID nineteen is not contagious. The virus isn't real, and these people are suffering from some kind of um, toxicity or something like that. Five G or pollution or whatever the case may be. Yeah, I mean, we've covered. Yeah, it that, seems like Tom
2: Tom Cowan's agenda is is to um, promote the terrain theory. You know, and that that it's all about the terrain and not the pathogen, and that um, people get sick because of environmental toxins and um, you know uh, malnutrition and that sort of thing um, so I don't know about Kaufman I didn't look into it his material quite as closely so
0: similar similar kind of thing they seem to both be kind of arguing the same idea well, Cowan as well has been kind of um accused of uh, misquoting Steiner and misrepresenting Mm -hmm. a lot of uh, the stuff that Rudolf Steiner had said. Um, You know, I think... um, What was the... Damien, maybe you can bring up the flowersociety.org link that I sent you. This was a guy who is kind of a, a researcher on Steiner, and he wrote a really good piece... Um, basically pointing out all the places where he felt that Cowan was really misrepresenting the things that um, um, Steiner had said and his contention is basically that Steiner never desi- de, you know um, denied the existence of viruses or the existence of uh, bacteria or pathogens or anything like that he really just kind of had a more holistic view of things and it was kind of the meeting of the pathogen with the terrain which is essentially what we've been saying as well. Um, but he brought in, you know, other things like, you know, the spiritual level, the emotional level, um, the environment, all those sorts of things. Um, and had, a, like like I say, a much more holistic kind of view of things. Which, you know, I can, I, I, I certainly uh, agree with. And I think that Cowan, to an extent, uh, is kind of like that too. I just think that he goes way too far and has to be very black and white about it is that it's not that it's kind of like it's the germ and the terrain it's like no there are no germs it's all the terrain it's just that kind of uh that polarized black and white kind of way of looking at it that i think really trips people up a lot
2: yeah for sure um you know and you could also look at uh, different kind of levels of reality. To um, you know, uh, so for instance, I, I guess you could, um, you know, ener- energy medicine on one level could be you could be talking about it as energy medicine, right? So I think we were talking about this, uh, Doug, with uh, Chinese medicine and mm-hmm. the Chinese medical theories with their. Um, it's a very naturalistic model that discusses environmental factors and how they affect the body so you know you could look at as 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 an energetic medicine you know talking about wind and and heat and cold and dampness but all of those symptoms you know those are uh describing symptoms in the physical body so um it's just a theory like a conceptual framework that was developed for understanding those symptoms uh when it's really describing the you know physical body the biology the functional physiology um i it's almost like uh newtonian physics versus quantum mechanics Mm -hmm. you know really quantum mechanics are more true than newtonian physics but newtonian physics you know when you're inside the solar system you're not on the vast scale of the universe the newtonian physics work fine to describe how gravity works on the Earth on a smaller scale, so it's not necessarily untrue. It's just not as true as um, quantum mechanics, and it's still useful.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so the idea of the body as a as an environment um, and symptoms as being you know caused by environmental factors, um, maybe it's not scientifically true. Maybe it's not true by the tenets of microbiology um but it's that doesn't mean it's not it's not useful and it doesn't mean that um you know you don't have to say well i i don't know i guess i'm i'm going into the uh terrain or the disease mechanic is just saying like it doesn't have to be um doesn't have to be one or the other
0: yeah
1: the yeah. devils in the details. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, do you guys have anything more to add to our discussion here? I don't know how how, you know, I don't think we really presented kind of like a smoking gun or anything like that today, but um I certainly think that you know, I guess it's the whole thing that um how does the saying go um Great claims require great evidence, or something like that. Um, I think if somebody's going to make a claim that the virus doesn't exist, they need some pretty strong evidence to, to back that up. Um, pretty strong evidence that what virologists are seeing and what they're reporting on is actually false. And I don't think, bottom line is, I don't think we're seeing that. I don't think we're seeing that at all. I think that what we're seeing is um, um, the opposite. It, It seems like you know. I don't. I guess what I'm saying is I don't. I don't have a reason to doubt virus theory.
1: Well, and that's the whole purpose of this show, right? Objective health to try and needle out those little details and uh, just provide some background for people that are interested that want to go down those uh, paths to find out more. You know, I mean, I think this is really about just encouraging individual learning and knowledge. If that's something that fascinates you, then look into it, but be willing to hold two opposing viewpoints at the same time without coming to a conclusion right off the bat. And uh I feel like we're kind of in this age of just laziness, (laughs) you know, like, oh, well, he said it, so it's not true. And then then it gets kind of, uh, you know, tweeted around or whatever, you know, people kind of just run with it and it it gets away from itself and uh, to uh, really encourage people to do your due diligence. You know, I mean, it's hard with how much misinformation is out there. It's really hard, but I think, Doug, you're an excellent example of somebody just spent the the greater part of your last week (laughs) going going through hundreds of uh, pieces of information to just try and understand it. You know, is there is there any sort of. you know, support for such an idea. And then, you know, but you also too got to like walk away from it for a moment and be like, okay, I'm just going to smell the flowers today (laughs) (laughs) and not get caught up because, uh, it can make you go crazy. Like you see in all these movies of the conspiracy theorists with all the yarn tied and all the, you know, I mean, and then people are like, see, they lost the plot, you know? So, uh, I don't yeah. know. And, you know, I know a lot of people don't have time to do that, but everyone's got something that interests them and fascinates them. And I don't yeah. know, be willing to be wrong. <laughs> too. I think that's a big part of
0: it. Yeah. <laughs> I think, and I think that a lot of people actually do get caught up in some of these um, ideas because they're not willing to be wrong. You know, uh, you know, there's the, the whole thing that once once you kind of dig into something, you just get more and more invested in it the whole time. Um, and mm-hmm. I think uh, being able to question your own assumptions is, uh, is important. And
1: mm-hmm. in a respectful manner. I mean, obviously, don't go on social media platforms and try and do that because it just seems like a, a flinging of feces. But, you know. Uh... <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, you don't even necessarily have to like try and call anybody else on it, but you know, just for yourself, you know, when you're digging into something, I mean, there's, there's something you said to being open to, to different things, but, uh, also, well, yeah, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Actually. I think you know, (laughs) you do, you need to kind of, uh, question your own thinking on a, on a lot of stuff and maybe test your, test what you think is true for yourself every once in a while.
1: And I think that these are times we're not seeing that, you know, as you were saying earlier, it's that divide, the great divide. And it's like, you know, this side, and we shall meet in the middle. But I think that's really what we all have a responsibility to try and do is just listen to people and, you know, be objective and, and let the conversations happen without getting emotionally worked up and angry and frustrated.
0: Yeah. Okay, well, I think we could call it there for today. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. We hope it was informative for you. We will be back um, next week with another interesting topic. Thanks to my co-hosts. Thanks to Damien. And we will see you all on the next one. Bye, everybody. Thanks, Doug. See you next week, everybody.